and, and you're really putting everything on the line, but it, it it's so fulfilling, like having this passion or this love for something and, and something, you know, that, that you don't make money at. Like it's just this want to be to be better, to improve, to uh, test yourself. And I started to learn like how difficult it was to put a perfect arrow in an animal, a wild animal, uh, you know, in a wild animal on public ground. And so that challenge is what hooked me is just being immersed, like always thinking about it. And then, you know, you just had to absolutely dedicate yourself to it. So like, like you have that you have to live that bow hunting 365 lifestyle, constantly be thinking about it, working on it and improving it. Again, for me, it's those places where when you get dropped off, you probably couldn't even walk out of those areas and, and survive. Those are the places that, that I want to be. So what I tell people, I says you can't replace time in the field. And, and that's the key, I think, to all of it is is if as much as time as you can spend, whether it's scouting, um, whether it's just watching the animals and understanding their behavior certain times a year. Outdoors podcast hosted by Lucas Paw. Our purpose is to help educate and inspire within you a renowned passion for the outdoors. So join us as we speak with experts in the industry to share insight and knowledge that helps make hunters and anglers more successful. Okay, I'm live here. I got Lucas Pog, uh, host of RNA Podcast. Uh, thanks a bunch for sitting down with me, Lucas. Yeah, Brian, uh, it's uh, it's good to finally catch up. I know you and I have talked at uh, or, or tried to connect at like the Hunt Expo and other things, and those shows get crazy. So it's good to finally catch up on a line and and uh, and uh, catch up on a podcast. So thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. Uh, uh, I really enjoy your social media. Um, you do your podcast. Uh, seems like you're you're all over either bow hunting or fly fishing or enjoying the outdoors and um, also spreading the word about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I I, I think about you know kind of where I've come from and and obviously where and you always reflect on things in in your life. And you know, I was I was born and raised in Montana, so I'm you know my heart's still in Montana, although I now reside in, in the central coast of California. I've been here about 15 years, but I, I spent about 22 years of my life in Montana growing up and, and really there found, you know, obviously the passion for, for being outdoors and, uh, started at a young age, my father, it was a way of life for us to, to go out and, and hunt and fish. And, and you know, then it was jeans and flannels and it was, you know, it, it was that kind of hunting, right? It, it wasn't a, a matter of, you know, getting the right pack and the right setup. It was about jumping in the truck with dad and, and going, you know, buck hunting or, or going, you know, Northern pike fishing. I mean, that's how we grew up and it was a lot of fun. And, and, uh, you know, I think it was probably, I would say in my college years, I went to school in, in Butte at Montana tech, where I think I really fell into a, a love and a passion for, for archery hunting and, uh, you know, living in Southwest Montana, there's so many opportunities and, 
and then obviously living near, uh, you know, the big hole river, a, you know, a blue ribbon trout stream, just, just found a passion for fly fishing. And I started to bring those two things together. And, uh, it wasn't until I actually, I think I moved to California is when I really realized how, how good I had it in Montana. But, uh, but yeah, um, that's kind of where that fire started. And, uh, you know, since then I would say I've been here for the last, uh, almost 18 years now. Um, I've just made it a passion to, um, travel the world with my bow in my hand or my fly rod and see places that, you know, probably most people will never see in their lifetime or adventure to places that, you know, less than 0.001% of the population will ever see. And, and, and those are the adventures that, that I really enjoy. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of those are, you know, I've, I've, I've hunted, you know, free range tar in New Zealand and, and spent countless days going after tar, which I know you're very familiar with Brian. I've hunted DIY moose in Alaska and Kodiak Island and, and been a lot of places around Alaska. And again, for me, it's those places where when you get dropped off, you probably couldn't even walk out of those areas and, and survive. Those are the places that, that I want to be. So anyway, that's kind of where a little bit of history and some of the passion of where my, my uh, outdoor, um, you know, livelihood has come from. So Man, um, good for you. Yeah, you're uh, uh, really making the most out of this life. Like traveling to those places, like those are the big super adventures. Those, they're they're almost they change your perspective a bit when you go on one of those big adventures like that, and you're all in, and, and you're really putting everything on the line. But it it it's so fulfilling, like having this passion or this love for something, and and something, you know that that you don't make money at. Like it's just this want to be, to be better, to improve, to, uh, test yourself. And, and I, I, I fell in love with sports as a kid and it, it just seemed like bow hunting kind of took that place after high school or after that, you know, and it, it wasn't really competitiveness with anybody else, but it was against myself. And I started to learn like how difficult it was to put a perfect arrow in an animal on a wild animal uh, you know, in a wild animal on public ground. And so that challenge is what hooked me is just being immersed, like always thinking about it. And then, you know, you just had to absolutely dedicate yourself to it. Like, like you have that you have to live that bow hunting 365 lifestyle, constantly be thinking about it, working on it and improving it just so you can be ready for that chance when you do get that super adventure. And, and right along with that super adventure, there's there's so many great ones that we can take advantage of in the States, you know, uh, elk in a different state or high country mule deer. I know some of the same hunts that you enjoy, you know, I consider those just as much a super adventure in the most remote country of the lower 48 too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I think back and a lot of my inspiration, you know, comes from Chuck Adams and, and, uh, you know, and as a kid, you know, we grew up, we, you know, we rifle hunted, you know, and, and I remember taking my first deer, I think when I was, I think I was 12 years old and it was sitting in a tree stand and, in, in you know, the Milk River in Northern Montana where I grew up and, and shot a white-tailed doe, you know, uh, you know, with this old Browning Micromitis bow. And I didn't really know what I had done. And, and, you know, I was reflecting on that, thinking about that experience. And, and, uh, but it wasn't really until I, I started reading some of Chuck's books, you know, the complete book of bow hunting and his autobiography, which was not written by him, but life at full draw was, was, was another great book. And, that's where I really, you know, I, I, I took in that adventure. I, I, I lived, I tried to live those adventures that he would tell in his books, you know, like, 
you know, when Chuck got dropped off on Kodiak Island for the first time, the, the super cub took off and had both pairs of his boots on it. So he was stuck on the Island for 10 days with a pair of muck boots. Essentially, what does he do? He goes out and he kills two of the number one and number two, sick of black tail bucks in Pope and young, you know, record, which are still standing today, you know, and he did this in, in muck boots on the Island. So that kind of stuff to me, it's like, you know, for someone to, persevere and be that resilient to, to, to basically say, you know, Hey, I'm stuck here. I'm going to be here 10 days until this plane comes back. I'm going to make the most of it. And that's how Chuck was and, and his passion for bow hunting. Um, you know, that that's something that I, you know, obviously, um, you know, look to and, and, and it has inspired me over the years and, and, uh, just really respect what, what Chuck has done for the industry and, and, uh, you know, and just as a person, just a, just a great guy as well. Hmm. Yeah, we're from the same era. Um, I was the same way. I grew up reading Chuck's books, all the ones you mentioned, the stories that you mentioned. Um, I grew up and my family all rifle hunted, and uh, I, I wanted to bow hunt. Originally, it was, um, you know, it, it was to take advantage of some some seasons. I could hunt earlier and I could hunt later. I could hunt longer than uh, my family with the rifle, where we only get you know, the four days for extended buck in Washington. And this is Washington before I moved out to Montana 20 years ago or so. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, uh, you know, I got a bow, you know, not only I, I say to take advantage of the seasons, but it was also there was just something cool about it, like trying to sneak in close and get close to these animals. And then, yeah, I remember reading Chuck Adams' book. No, it wasn't too long after that uh, Cameron Haynes book came out and I was hunting by that time and I was in Montana and made it a part of my life. But, you know, then I got to see a, a guy take it to a whole nother level that was 10 years older than I was that was really going for it. I was like, man, I just want that adventure in my life. And and I started to, to dive into it and, and just find my own adventures. And when I first started, you know, it wasn't the cool thing to do. There wasn't anybody hunting high country mule deer. I say there wasn't anybody. There's been somebody since the beginning of time. But all these bow tags, they were so easy to get. These really yeah. sought-after tags, I could pick them up with zero, one, two points. Nobody was bow hunting these things. So I could go to, to all the coolest places and really cut my teeth, you know, it was one thing to get proficient at bow hunting elk in my home valley, but then to be able to travel to a new place and immerse myself in that habitat and start putting the pieces of the puzzle together and trying to figure it out, how to be successful, how to consistently find game and get stocks. And and uh, I just absolutely fell in love with it and, and just feel like I'm living a, a passionate life. And the, the more success, the more adventures I went on, the more I was planning and the more I was doing and the more I was preparing. I just, you know, I just fell in love with it. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, it opens up doors, you know, I mean, a lot of times what I find, I mean, you know, where I live now in, in central California, it's not like there's millions of, of, you know, acres of public land. I mean, it's pretty well locked down. It's, it's a lot of private land and, and, but there is some public pieces here that, that I found a lot of success on, you know, both um, deer hunting and pig hunting on and also turkey hunting. But, um, you know, here, when, when you tell someone you're a bow hunter, they say, oh, okay. Cause everyone here kind of models the fact being a rifle hunter and they don't want rifle hunters around. So, you know, being a bow hunter sometimes opens up opportunities that way because, you know, people typically tend to think of a hunter as a guy with a shotgun or a rifle. He's going to be 
around my cows and I don't want them there, but bow hunting typically has a, a different feel to it and sometimes allows, you know, access to places or into areas where you can't normally do. And to further your point on tags, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there are so many good tags out there, um, that are archery tags that, uh, you know, you can get for, like you say, sometimes you can draw it every year without a point in a state that's got a point system and you can go hunt high country bucks every year and be into, you know, great class deer, right? 180, 190 class deer all the time uh, on these tags. And that's what I love about uh, this time of year, really from January till now, it's, you know, trying to set up your whole, you know, summer and fall season. And, and for us here, it starts early. So our our uh, blacktail season actually starts the second weekend in July. It's the earliest deer archery season uh, in the U.S. So, you know, we're starting here. We're chasing blacktails here in another month and a half. I've been out scouting for the last couple of weeks and, and already seeing bucks that are, I would say, three quarters developed, eye guards, and, and just a fun time of year seeing them in velvet. And uh, we're getting tuned up here for, for our deer season. And then that continues, uh, you know, obviously into elk season and, and uh, into the fall, which is, you know, for me, really where my passion lies is, is hunting the Western states, being in back in Montana. Montana, you know, hunting elk September, October, and then trying to draw a few tags a year. And, and, uh, I've actually already drawn a Nevada deer tag this year. So I'm excited about that. So that's on the plan this year. And I've got a, a Montana deer and elk tag as well, which I typically do every year. So just trying to fill in those voids and, and, uh, you know, fill up, uh, the year, uh, with, uh, with some good hunts. So, yeah, I agree hundred percent. There's so much opportunity with a bow when you really start to look at it. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, it's awesome you get to start early. I I love those early seasons and um yeah, I won't be starting too long after you. It sounds like you're the the middle of July. I've got a hunt coming up at the end of July uh, and go over to uh, Hawaii and hang out with my buddies out there and, and hunt those mouflon sheep and axis deer. So fun. Good warm awesome. up for the season. And then I was lucky enough to draw a Nevada tag as well this year. I get pretty aggressive with my applications in Nevada. I love their populations of deer down there and they sure grow some good ones. And it's just a, a fun hunt. Those early season mule deer when you could take advantage of them in in August like that when they have their lax summertime attitudes and hanging in the high country in those bachelor herds just makes for such a fun hunt and um then like you say there isn't there isn't much more that's uh there isn't anything much more thrilling than hunting elk with a bow that that rut and the bugle um it, being able to interact back and forth with elk and elk are so nomadic and they're such giant animals and you know, they can have 60 inches of antler above their head and sc these screaming, piercing bugles uh, just makes your heart race. And uh, it seems like you just do anything to catch up to a bull like that. And, and it's it's tough, too. You know, we talk about these hunts and these opportunities, but but to a novice bow hunter, it's almost overwhelming. Like it it takes years to build your skill level and, and build your confidence and be able to go to these places and find these animals. Like we all have to start somewhere. And, and it's this, it's this circle of knowledge that you, you, you always continue to grow and continue to learn as a bow hunter. But when you're first starting out, it's all overwhelming. And it, it's just, it's tough to even endure and be out in nature, you know, to be out, on a mountain for 10 days up where humans aren't meant to live and have to pack everything you need up there. You know, it's, it's physically and, and mentally taxing and demanding. And so 
you know, it takes just like with a starter hunt. And I always tell guys to start with like a high opportunity hunt. You hunt Montana a lot, uh, Montana for deer, some of the populations out eastern Montana or even, you know, Nevada drawing one of those high country hunts. But just those high opportunity hunts, antelope's a great one, you know, where you yeah. get to, to spot a bunch of animals, stalk a bunch of animals. And really these animals – you know, this this experience that you have a field, it really teaches you, you know, if you pay attention, it, it, it teaches you how to be a better bow hunter. It teaches you what you can get away with and what you can't. And so I always tell guys to start with those high opportunity hunts, the fun ones where you're getting action, you're getting your heart rate up, you're getting chances, you're you're stalking animals and you just kind of keep working your way up. And eventually uh, you have your whole fall filled like like uh, guys like you and and uh other bow hunters around where you know i think i've got hunts planned all the way from about august and then i did draw a good tag in january in new mexico down there and so gosh it's it's uh i keep adding more and more hunts because i love the adventure but uh it's definitely going to be a full season but it's out there for anybody to go get yeah no i i'm with you 100 percent and and back to your comment about you know i would say kind of a novice or beginning bow hunter it is there is no doubt that it's overwhelming and 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 what do they fill their head with they go on youtube they listen to podcasts i mean they, they want to learn and they see guys going out there and and they you know they bugle they cow call this bull comes in they shoot the bull and they see that and they say man that's what i want to do and and there's nothing more like you say more magnificent than you know a giant bull coming in screaming his guts out you know wanting to either fight or breed because that's really during that time of year what they want to do but but i tell people the same thing i said look at your opportunities everybody wants to go and hunt elk in arizona right or new mexico and and i've hunted both of those states for elk and uh it's taken me you know basically the last 15 years to hunt each of them. So I tell people, I say, you know, that's good and, and have those thoughts, but always keep that in your five to year 10 plan, you know, five to 10 year plan. And for me, everything is, is, is batched out in, in my five year, 10 year, 15 and 20 year plan, which realistically some tags in the West can take 20 years to draw. And I fortunately in some States started years ago where I'm max in some points and, and, you know, I'm max in California, uh, and I'm max in Montana for, for sheep and, and elk and, and moose and goat. But other states I started 10 years ago, right? So that puts me on a 10-year track. But I tell people, go to Colorado, go to Idaho, go to Montana, go to these states where you can buy a tag over the counter, show up like Colorado. You can show up the day before the season, archery season, buy an elk tag, and you can be elk hunting the next day. And uh, I said... What I tell people, I says, you can't replace time in the field. And, and that's the key, I think, to all of it is is if as much as time as you can spend, whether it's scouting, um, whether it's just watching the animals and understanding their behavior certain times a year, that'll tell you so much. Because an elk right now is not an elk in September. And an elk in September is not an elk in, in November, December, right? Because they're, such, they're so different. And to your point, in the summer, they're in their summer range and they're you know, when they're in velvet, they don't like being in thick stuff because the velvet rubs on the trees and that hurts them. So they stay more out in the open. And then when they, they rub their velvet, they become a little more nocturnal, right? And then as you get them past the breeding cycle, they be basically hold up in sanctuary where they're almost impossible to find until they drop their antlers. So it, it's so neat to be out in the field and just watch the animals this time of year. And then, and, and then segueing into, you know, when you're actually chasing them with a bow or whatever method to take it, 
is your method, right? And and then seeing them after that, it, they're such a different animal and a different critter. But you know, I, again, I tell people find opportunity, find places where on a budget, you know, you can go and put an elk tag in your pocket and go spend at least at least seven to ten days. If you can spend seven days, you're going to get into elk. You're going to have an opportunity. Hopefully, it's just the key is to capitalize when you have that opportunity. But it is tough being new, and 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 I think you know we were all there at one point, right? And some have taken many years to 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 harvest an elk. And you know, I try to put two elk tags in my pocket every year to the extent that I can, and uh, and just because I love I love the passion of elk hunting. So, but yeah, 100% agree. Opportunity, opportunity, opportunity. Experience is king. Uh, I love your advice that you're giving out because you're you're right. Even with these tags, like everybody wants, you know, a giant bull or a giant buck. But the the deal is, is even these great tags that you talk about that you maybe draw every ten years or every twenty years. You talked about, you know, the last. It's taken you the last fifteen years to draw New Mexico and Arizona. I still haven't drawn New Mexico and Arizona, and have been putting in for for my fifteen years. You know that's on my long term yeah. plan. But the goal, the deal is, is if you haven't built the skill set to go hunt one of these great units, you're not going to be able to field judge to even tell what a what a big bull is, and you just won't have the skill set to be able to harvest one of these next level critters because you haven't paid your dues or or gained that experience, like you say that. Every year you have two elk tags. You spend a lot of time in the elk woods, and and through that, you know you learn all those little things: uh, how to get into elk, how to glass them up consistently, how to scout terrain and and find where elk like. And then you know you take it all the way down. You know you talked about you know seizing your opportunity and closing your deal. And it seems like talking on a podcast or sitting around thinking about it. You know, oh, you get within 40 yards of an elk, 30 yards of an elk, you put a perfect arrow, he's done. But the truth of the matter is, is delivering a, a perfect arrow under that fog of adrenaline, something that, that you've been chasing and working towards all year long, and you finally get this, you know, this this opportunity. And, and trying to seize that opportunity, you know, I can tell you firsthand that it takes messing up a few times and, get you know, learning how to get control of yourself in those intense moments and then and then practicing that and, and knowing yeah. what it takes and then priding yourself on, on closing that deal when you do get that opportunity. Uh, it's, it's what bow hunting is all about, but it it is so difficult. It's so easy to sit here and talk about, but to deliver a perfect arrow on an animal that you've been chasing for days, really tough to do, and especially something so excitable as, as hunting elk, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, I always say about bow hunting, it's so rewarding and it's so humbling at the same time. And, and, uh, it, it, I'm constantly reminded when I've got a bow on my hand, um, that how humbling, you know, it can be. And I mean, <laughs> this year I was basically on track to shoot three birds. You can shoot three spring birds in California. And here I am, it's Sunday, the last day of season. And I've got a gobbler coming in and our season closes at 5 PM. I've already, I've already tagged two birds in the season. And last day I've got this nice bird coming in and, uh, we're working him, we're working him. He comes in to about 25 yards. And, uh, I don't know if I didn't have my bubble level. I don't know. Cause he was, he was full strut getting ready to hit the decoys. And, uh, I'm pretty sure I punched the trigger, but when I let the trigger go, I saw the arrow basically hit below him and he pitched up and flew out. And I knew immediately that I hadn't, you know, made a, a shot on that animal. And, and fortunately enough, I, I missed so blatantly that I didn't even hit the animal. So it wasn't wounded, but, 
um, you know, I walked away from that experience. This was three weeks ago, right? And, you know, here I am getting ready to go, you know, hunt stone sheep in two months and, and all these amazing hunts I've done where I've been successful. And here I am, you know, beating myself up over missing, you know, this 20 pound turkey that was coming into decoys that was fully strut, fully puffed, didn't even know I was there. And uh, I slapped the trigger, you know, so it, it's, it is, it's constantly, it's constantly telling you that you're, you're never there. Right. And, and, uh, and I think that's to me, the pinnacle of it is, you know, you can say some of these guys that we look up to have, have mastered the sport, but when you really talk to them or get in those conversations, they've had a lot of experiences where things didn't come together either on their end, you know, and, and that's how they learn. That's how we all learn, right? Making mistakes and moving on. And uh, I came back home that Monday. I literally set up my, my sequence in the back. I shot my bow. My bow was shooting lights out and I shot the same arrow, the same setup, same broadhead, everything. And I was, I was, I was dead on at 25, 30, you know, 20 to 30 yards. So I knew that it wasn't the arrow, that it wasn't the bow, that it was me in that instance. So uh, again, constant reminder, uh, it's humbling, but our work is never done. Yeah, it's never done. Um, well, it's just good that, that uh, you know, you've learned to self-evaluate too. Like a lot of times our ego wants to take over and make an excuse for it, you know, and, and sometimes you can do everything right and the animal can jump your string too, you know, They're, like the animal can react, uh, it can take a step, there's things that can go wrong, but evaluating those experiences and, and evaluating them and, and really looking at yourself like that's where self-improvement comes from you know like if you just make an excuse and go oh that that bird was moving right as i shot or i had to shoot quick because he was coming in there's a million different ways that you could say that or that you could look at it in your brain but instead you looked at it and went you know, I did not execute my trigger right. I, I punched the trigger, and, and none of us are immune to it. No matter how many animals we harvest, how good we get at it, you lose that focus for one second, you slap that trigger, that arrow doesn't hit, and you can't ever have that moment back, you know? And so yeah. it, it hurts. And, and we talked about, like, earlier, bow hunting. Bow hunting will take you to your highest highs, but the only reason it does that is because it'll also take you to your lowest lows. And would you really want that animal worse than anything? Like like your stone sheep hunt coming up, I'm sure you're just training like a madman right now. Yeah, And, and you want that opportunity, but when an, when an opportunity slips between your fingers or you mess it up, um, boy, that that hurts down to the soul, it seems like. Uh, those are yeah. tough pills to swallow, but all we can do, you can't have the moments back. So you just have to look at it. Uh, you know, I always try to be happy for the encounter because that's what I love about bow hunting. And then it's like all I can do is improve and get better. The next time I can execute flawlessly. And what do I need to do to do that? I need to, you know, work on this or I need to say this mantra to myself or I need to keep this in focus when I'm shooting. But if I look at it that way and then see – and look at the the next opportunity that's where i'm going to improve like like that's what what drives me or at least that's what pulls me out of those slumps when i do hit those lows which which happen in bow hunting failure is a prerequisite absolutely and i mean if you haven't wounded an animal and it got away you you know you haven't bow hunted so i you know and that's a part of it too and that that's the that's to me you know obviously the 
the lows of the lows. And that's what you talked about. You know, it's one thing to, to just miss, I mean, just blatantly miss, you know, airball one over their back or they take a step and, and you were nervous and, you know, completely just, you know, just blow the shot. But it's another thing to, you know, you know, to pierce the animal somewhere and, uh, you know, they get away and you don't find them. And, and I mean, we've all, we've all been there, right? We all know it sucks. We've all been with a buddy on a hunt where they've done that. And you've spent, you've given up your hunt in the next day to go track that animal. And, uh, and that's the lowest of lows and, and that's where it hurts. But I, I think again, it's, it's dusting yourself off and, and, uh, and, you know, figuring out self-diagnosing, like you said, and that's what I do every time I know if I blow something, I will take that arrow, that setup, if it's still shootable, I will go back and I will shoot that again just to rule out in my mind. Okay. It was the situation. It was the adrenaline. It was something going because right now I'm shooting on foam and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting fine. So, uh, it's always, I'm always trying to troubleshoot my system to understand, um, you know, where my failure is and which really gets to, you know, setting up a bow and, and finding the right bow and, and, uh, and doing that whole process, you know, it, there's, there's a science to it. Uh, I, I really do believe there's a science to it. Um, but I also think it's an art too, and how you do that. I think it's both. And, uh, and there's so many things you can get caught up in doing, but, um, there are, it is, it is very essential to know that thing so well that if you had a failure in the field or had to do something to, to, you know, improve that you could do that. And versus, you know, a lot of folks go to a pro shop, they buy a bow off the rack, you know, Hey, they go shoot at 20 yards. They're, you know, they're hitting the target perfect at 20 yards and they go out in the field and, and it's like a whole new thing. So, um, being able to, you know, do some field surgery as needed on these, if, if needed. And I've had to do that. I was on my New Mexico elk hunt two years ago and, uh, I was, I had a Halon 32 then, and, uh, my bow failed, my rest actually failed. And fortunately I had a backup bow there and, and I was not able to, uh, to put my bow on a press and fix it. So, um, you know, in those cases, you're fortunate to have that, but, um, it does, it happens. And, and you got to know the bow well enough to, to know if you need to make a repair on it in the field, you can do that and, and still feel confident using it. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely spot on Lucas, like your, your weapon, it comes down to that bow, you know, and, and knowing it inside and out and all bow makers nowadays are building great bows. Like the technology we have, I mean, I, uh, you know, when we started bows were way different and you look, you mentioned Chuck Adams, what he was hunting with was way different than what we get to hunt with nowadays. But it, it was him putting in the work and the practice, making sure his setup was dialed and, and, and having that thing and knowing it inside and out. And, and that's how he was able to del deliver those perfect arrows. There's just not a doubt in my mind. And so this is a major part of the equation for, for taking up bow hunting is that commitment to that bow and setting it up correctly. I think, you know, a lot of times you're either setting yourself up for success or setting yourself up with for failure with a bow. Um, so yeah, it's um you know there's a couple different routes to go, um, but when you're when you're looking at a bow, I always say the technology you really notice the difference about every five years or so. So you know if you can pick up a, a new bow about every five years and you can make them last longer, or you can get the newer technology in in three years, but but usually they're good for for a good five years and longer. They'll hold up for longer than that, but that's where the technology really starts to get behind. But um, you know, once you get a bow, there's a couple, couple different routes and it sounds like you do most of your own work on your own bow. Is that right, Lucas? Yeah. So 
that that's a good segue, Brian. You know, thinking about um, those two routes, I mean, there are really two ways to do it. You know, you can you become a learner and, and kind of do it and learn it yourself, or you can have, you know, a pro shop and build a relationship there. And I, and, and I do want to spend a few minutes on that. I, I think it's so important to establish, you know, a relationship wherever you live, you know, typically there's going to be some pro shop within some, you know, amount of distance. And for me, fortunately in in San Luis Obispo, we have a a great pro shop down there and owners are great guys. I've I've built good relationships with them. And, uh, typically like I just, you know, I got the new VXR this year. I'm a Matthews guy. And, and, you know, when you talk about technology, I started, you know, with the SQ2, it was one of their first solo cams and I moved to an Outback. So I actually, I, I went backwards because I love the Outback so much. And I'll tell you today, that was close to 15, 15, 16 years ago. I still have that Outback sitting uh, as one of my backup bows because I I love the bow. It's loud, it's obnoxious, but I've I've yet to find a bow uh, that shoots so well. And then I've progressed and I've had the Halon. I had the Vertix last year, but with the VXR, um, you know, I, I took that down to the pro shop and, uh, I work with them and, and what we do is we sit down and I'll spend the whole morning with Joel, with my bow and, and we'll, we'll take my sight and, and, uh, you know, we'll get all three axes lined up and, and we'll get the site locked in. Um, we'll set my rest, we'll get it right. We'll get it level. Then we'll tune my rest, right? Which in my opinion is probably one of the most overlooked steps on a bow is getting the, the rest tuned right. And, and, you know, for listeners wondering what that means, it's really based on when you're shooting your arrow, um, how does the arrow, you know, come out of the string? Is it fishtailing or, or one term is porpoising? If it's tearing one side left or right, that's telling you that, you know, at 20 yards, it's probably not a big deal, but at 60 yards, it's magnified significantly. So, you know, we'll be down there and we'll, we'll tune the rest and, uh, you know, we'll get the, we'll get the peep set right. And, um, you know, it, it's just all the, all the, I would say the, the major work that requires a press, I'm going to take down to my pro shop and, and I'm going to, like I say, spend a morning with them kind of diving in and, and getting it just, you know, basically set up to the point where I can take it. And then what I do is when I take it, I take it and actually tune it myself. And, and a lot of the tunings for me specifically, you know, I've got micro rests so I can go, uh, you know, elevation and windage on rests. Um, you know, I do some micro tuning with my site, but I, again, I want to ensure that the axes are set up perfectly and, and, and level, but I'm always, I'm one of those guys that, um, you know, I shoot probably three to four arrows a day at most, maybe five arrows a day. And, uh, you know, people ask, you know, man, I shoot like 50 arrows a day and I'm practicing. And I said, well, that's great. I said, but if you're shooting 40 to 50 arrows a day and, and, what you're doing is maybe your habits are not good. That's a bad habit forming 40 to 50 arrows you're shooting. I go out, I've got my block set up. I shoot at 20 and 30. I shoot three to five arrows. And Randy Ulmer put it to me perfectly when he said, perfect practice makes perfect. And what that means is, is I could go out and if I can shoot three to five arrows perfectly every single time, I'm done, right? I'm starting on a good note. I'm ending on a good note. I'm going through my pre-shot sequence. You know, everything feels good. I shoot three to five arrows. I'm not fatiguing myself and I'm done for that day, you know, and, and that's my practice routine. I shoot 3d once a week. I go out, I've got a, a 3d range. One of the ranches I shoot out, I go out every Friday night and I shoot and I extend out to 70, 80 and I shoot multiple different three range opportunities there. But my daily practice routine is three to five arrows a day. And I try to make each, I put every single little bit of energy into each arrow to make every shot perfect. 
Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about kind of setting up my bow, uh, at least kind of from, uh, I would say I'm a more of a hybrid. I, I will use a pro shop and, and again, I, I support the local business here. So, you know, I buy a lot of my accessories there and I go through them and, and fortunately Matthews has been sending me bows the last few years. That's been very cool, but I do try to support the local business here and take my bow in and I'll just spend a morning, like I say, a morning with them getting it set up. And I just really enjoy doing that because those guys do it every day. That's their job and livelihood. You know, I, I, I love to hunt and it's my passion. It's not what puts food on the table for me. So for me, that's why I, I, I think I'd love it even more because it's not my day to day. It's something that I just have a passion for and uh, love to do. So yeah, that's a little bit about, uh, kind of setting up a bow, at least how I've done that in the past. So, yeah, that's, um, I love your attention to detail and yeah, there's, there's just different routes that we can go with this. And, and this is where we get to compare and contrast. And so this is what makes a podcast really fun. So, um, yeah, I used to use the pro staffs and uh, the, the pro shops, and I like the way you do it, where you go in and you sit with those guys and you spend a morning and you ask questions and you ask why they're moving this and why they're they're moving that. And then working with the tune and working with these guys. And you're right. They set up hundreds and hundreds of bows. They, they have tons of experience with these bows. Um, but but the route I went is is to always work on my own stuff. I know it inside mm-hmm. and out. But you can't just do this from a YouTube. You can't just read or buy a new bow and set this thing up from scratch. Again, just like bow hunting, it takes years and it takes, you know, I've had great mentors along the way. And I always say, if you want to work on your own bow, the first step is going to that pro that pro shop and hanging out with those guys and, and having, you know, they'll actually teach you. They'll let you tie things in. They'll let you mess mm-hmm. with your bow, ask questions, understand it. Like, don't let it be a black magic to you. Understand what's going on with your bow, why you're moving things, and then you know, you got down to your micro tuning and the guys at the shop, they don't, they don't have enough time to spend days on your bow. You know, they, they can spend an hour or a morning on it. They can get it tuned pretty good, but, but a lot of these guys, they'll tune it to their own grip, you know, because it, not all pro staff guys are created equal. Let's say that. So some yeah. of these guys will tune a bow to their own grip when really a bow needs to be tuned to the individual. So it needs to be tuned to your grip, to your pull, to your draw, everything that you do. And if something isn't right with the per, with the right spined arrow and the right setup bow, you know, then it it may take a few lessons on your grip or on your form, and that's always humbling to have to make changes to your form. But those changes they make you a little bit worse before they make you better than you ever were, you know. And so yeah. you you have to swallow your pride on these things, take advice from these guys, and make these changes. And so, you know, when I get a bow. Like I do all my own setup myself, but like I say, this has been from years of having mentors and having being surrounded by great shooters and being able to call these guys and ask them questions. Hey, this is tuning outside. Hey, this is doing that. Getting an answer, trying that, moving things around. And so throughout the years, you know, I've gained the the confidence of where, you know, I make all my own adjustments, but the same way you set up your bow is the same way I set up mine. So, uh, you know, you're talking the bow, 
Um, you, you mount your rest, you tie in your string loop, you want a level arrow going through your burger button hole, and then you talked about your rest tuning. And, and most of this is done, at least most of mine, is done through a paper tuner. And, and just mm -hmm. like you stated, this is showing how those arrows are coming out of your bow. And you want those arrows to come out perfectly straight. Now, you can shoot good groups with an arrow that doesn't come out perfectly straight with field points. The minute you start sticking on broadheads, it's like sticking fletchings on the front of that arrow. Catches wind different. And it just doesn't make for the, the most forgiving setup. So spending time with that paper tuner in your grip and, and not only getting it to shoot a bullet hole through paper, but finding the most forgiving setup, too, to where, you know, you don't have to do everything perfect to get a bullet hole. You know, you can kind of uh, it, it, it's just a forgiving setup. You know, if I shoot 10 arrows into the paper and, and four of them have a low right rip, that's not a forgiving setup to me. Like, I want to shoot all my arrows so that low right rip, I'll try to take that out and I'll try to move things back and be in the middle. And so I really mess with that paper tune. Now, if, you're, if your tuning isn't going right, you know, there's a few things you can do. So you just start with moving your rest around, up, down, left, right, depending on the tear of your arrow. Um, it also has to do with the spine of your arrow. The spine is how stiff your arrow. So it'll react different coming out of the bow. And that spine, you can adjust that by cutting arrows shorter or longer. And there's there's uh, uh, charts that I use from Easton, from Gold Tip. Um, uh, even a more precise way is to use like Archer's Advantage, an internet program to really find the perfect spine for the performance of your bow. But even then, all these bows are made in the factory. Sometimes you'll get a little left or right rip, or maybe it tunes outside to an inch where, where true center shot path, you want it at 13 sixteenths. And so you can actually move the tune of that bow, um, you know, some bows like, like Hoyt's, uh, you know, you can, you can, they, it goes to a Y cable, and so you can twist those strings to kind of move around that Y cable. The Matthews, uh, uh, they have shim kits, and so you can take the cam apart and move the shim kit to get it just to tune right where you want it. Then the power path of that string and that forgiving setup. But that's so important, and then I heard you mention your sight. And, and the axes on your site are so important. First axis, second axis, third axis. And so you want to make sure your bow's completely level. You want to make sure your sights are completely level. And then you want to make sure your level inside your site's completely level. And then you even take it further to set your third axis for shooting downhill or uphill. But but all yeah. this setup and this attention to detail, it, it, it turns out, like, when you look at all said and done, you just have this forgiving setup bow to where even if you make a little mistake, you're not missing the bullseye by that far because this bow is just set up to shoot accurate, you know. And so, yeah. man, I mean, I, I just couldn't stress the importance of what you said more. Like, uh, we go the same route, and my practice is different than yours, see – I shoot a lot of arrows, and it's all about personality type. I mean, me, I, I'm 25 arrows minimum a day, 25 of perfect execution, like you said. Uh, but, I, I mean, I usually shoot 50 arrows a day. I like my muscle memory. I like my back to be strong. I like pulling hard on those strings. I like shooting and being so comfortable with that bow. It feels like an extension of me. But there, there's no wrong way to do it. We each have to just find our own route. And I have guys that are great hunters uh, Dan Picard shoots a trigger style, and he'll put his bow away for a couple months, and he kills more animals with his bow than nearly anybody else out there. We all just have to find the right system that meshes with our brain and our training. And, and two, like I like, 
it feels like I'm paying my dues. I'm always working towards that opportunity that I know I'm going to create this year. So, so for me, I shoot a bunch of arrows, but that's where we compare and contrast and there really is no wrong way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think like you were saying to build on your comment about, you know, that kind of that moment of truth, it's all these little things, you know, it's the confidence. And when, you know, like you said, if you're maybe even an eighth or a quarter bubble off on a, on a, maybe a, you know, a 20 degree incline shot, um, you know, if your bow's tuned right, all your axes are correct. It may, it may just be enough that it doesn't, you know, make that big of a difference. But if it's not tuned right, um, you know, it could be the difference of that arrow sailing right over the back of that animal. So it, it is, it's, it's locking everything in it's shooting and, and knowing that you have the confidence. And it's one thing to, again, sit in the backyard and, and, you know, throw arrows down range and feel very confident. It's so different when you're under the circumstance of, you know, adrenaline pumping and an animal coming in, but it, it is, it's having the muscle memory. There's no doubt about it going through that sequence and, and, uh, you know, really capitalizing on the opportunity. That's why I tell everyone, I said, if you spend enough time in the field, that opportunity is going to happen and, and animals slip up from time to time. And if you're there during that time, when they do, you just got to take uh, advantage of that opportunity. And, uh, and that's the key. And, you know, just to another build on, you know, we talked about kind of the bow and the rest, but I mean, arrows, we, we, you were jumping into that a little bit, but I'm an Easton guy too. So I, you know, I shoot the, the aluminum full metal jackets and, and I've shot them for years and, you know, they're heavy, right? I mean, my, my setup, I just did a, um, I just did kind of a, a, a story here recently on my setup, but I shoot at 492 and that's my setup and it's heavy. And, and people say, man, that's so heavy. And I said, well, yeah, it is, but see, that's what I like. I like weight. I like weight forward. I like a heavy setup. Now my bow, you know, it still shoots at around 280 to 285 and it's not a, it's not a a roaster shooter, right? It's not shooting 300 feet per second, but I don't need that, right? I I don't need a bow that, that shoots IBO that says 330. That's, that's not what I need. I, I want something that has a lot of energy, a lot of kinetic energy and a lot of weight. And that's why I've over the years actually gone more to the aluminum arrow. Um, and there's a couple reasons why I think, um, you know, with aluminum, you can mold aluminum perfectly, right? Cylindrical, um, you can make that aluminum sheath perfect every single time. And, and that's an advantage, right? Uh, versus, you know, carbon, it's fibers, um, you know, in the lot, typically you never know how every arrow is going to come out. You got to shoot them, right? Every year, every, um, every single dozen arrows I get, I weigh all of them right out the gate. So I take all of them, whether they're bare shafted or whether they have fletching on them. And I weigh every single one of them. And what I do is I label them one to 12 and I will label it on the fletch. And, uh, one of the things that I, I do when I do that is, is I'm trying to find what are the five arrows that are going to go into my quiver that are equivocally, at least from a weight standpoint within a tolerance of, I would say one to two grains at most, right? So I weigh them bare shaft, I weigh them fletched, then I weigh them with a practice tip. Then I weigh them with a broadhead. And what I do is I narrow that, that basically that, that tolerance down to where I find my five perfectly weighted arrows that I'm going to use for practice. And then my seven arrows out of the 12 that are going to be weighted uh, with a broadhead that are perfectly centered and, and used for when I'm hunting and everything that I do is consistent. So 
one thing you might notice, like if you ever watch competition shooters, like Olympic shooters, like just take something like veins or their fletching, right? They're all the same color. And, and people ask, well, why is that? Well, because typically, you know, a vein, you don't think about it. a lot of guys run red, white, and blue, or they run two reds and a white or a green and two whites, etc. Well, when you do that, you can mix and match veins, which potentially there could be a weight tolerance difference depending on how it's scribed on there. But if you run them all the same color, typically they're coming from the same box. Um, they're coming from the same run where they're going to be very, very consistent. So that's a little thing that, you know, I've learned over the years and I've just kind of taken note as I've watched guys like, you know, Randy Ulmer years ago used to shoot Olympic shooting, John Dudley, those guys, I mean, they all will tell you, you always use the same color veins for that reason. So, so then from there, you know, knocks are another thing, you know, a lot of guys are, you know, Hey, these Luminox and, you know, and all those are, they're great, but you got to remember, you know, a standard knock is eight to 10 grains. A Luminox is 24 to 27, 28 grains. So if you're adding that stuff to your setup, you want to make sure, you know, on D-Day, when you're out there in the field, you're shooting, you know, whatever a very similar setup is on your practice setup as, as what you're going to shoot uh, when you're actually getting ready to hunt. Because I tell you, that little stuff, as much as folks don't pay attention to some of those little details, um, I, again, I think it can be the difference sometimes uh, of, of, you know, success versus failure. And uh, it's all those little things that you take into consideration. And, and that for me is where I find the most enjoyment out of all this is I do a lot of that stuff myself. So again, the, the, the higher level stuff, getting the bow kind of set up, you know, a lot of that I like to do with the pro shop. Again, like we said, I like to have that time with those guys, but when I start really tuning, weighing and, and digging into my system and weighing my setup and finding the perfect, like one blade looks like it's bent, you know, I, I'm going to change that out. And, and, and I want to make sure that my setup, you know, at least for the five arrows in my quiver are, are going to perform perfectly every time. And, and, uh, and again, that's just me, you know, I've always enjoyed aluminum Eastern arrows. You know, I used to shoot the old super slams years ago in my old Matthews bows. And again, they kind of went away from aluminum and then they came back. And, you know, a lot of folks say there's downside to aluminum. It is heavy. You know, if your bow falls over and hits a rock and it dents the aluminum, you know, your, your arrow is probably done at that point. So there's always a trade-off, whether you use, um, you know, a carbon fiber, um, arrow, whether you use a graphite arrow years ago, or whether you use an aluminum arrow. Uh, but for me, I've always found, um, that aluminum for me, I like the way I like the front, uh, front of center weight. I like the weight forward. And I just love the energy that those, those arrows put out. And, uh, I've just always been an Easton fan for, for many years. So yeah, arrows are so important. And a lot of times, you know, guys will say, yeah, I went to Bass Pro. I bought a dozen arrows and they cut them for me and all that. And, and, and that's good, but there's so much more behind it. Um, like you were saying, getting them cut right and, and all that, it, it, it's so key and getting the right inserts in there. And, and, uh, to me, all that's important. And, and I make sure all that stuff is tuned right. Yeah, it's um, no accident that you're consistently successful, Lucas. Like just talking to you, your your attention to detail. The devil is in the details, and and it is. It's putting in that work prior to season and making sure that's all dialed. So, you know, this is another another chance. Like my preference is, you know, I, I I'm more on the carbon side of things. Like I uh, I like the heavier arrows, like you. Uh, I've got some arrows built this year at 455, and then I've got some elk arrows that are built at 505. Um, 
You're right, a heavier arrow, that front of center t tends to pull it towards the target, seems to shoot better at longer range. Also, that heavier arrow quiets down the bow, and so many of yep. these animals out west, mule deer, about one in four mule deer will jump my string. And it, you know, sometimes it can be a 160-inch buck, or sometimes it can be a 200-inch buck. Uh, same thing with antelope. And, and axis deer on Hawaii are horrible. I'd say three out of four of those things jump your string out there. Like, they're, mm -hmm. they're really switched on and tricky, but... Yeah, I like the carbon fiber arrows. I like a heavier weight arrow. I like that the weight up front like you, like I'll I shoot the one twenty fives and then I actually add weight to the back of the insert. Um, I also like going with a shorter arrow. I like to shoot an arrow that's only an inch past my rest or a half inch past my rest because the shorter that arrow is, uh, the less uh, a wind drifts it's going to get in the air. The longer that arrow is, the more surface it has to catch wind to blow it sideways. Um, so I, I like shooting a shorter arrow, but you have to get the correct spine so that spine matches that bow. And and um, your attention to detail and the aluminum works great for you. For me, my problems were uh, the aluminum will bend. And so even mm -hmm. the aluminum over the carbon fiber, shooting my practice arrows, sometimes I would get a bend in that arrow and I wouldn't realize it and it'd be out of the group. Now, you've already solved that problem by numbering all your arrows, tracking all your arrows, making sure if you've got a bad one, you know why. And then you can put it on a roller or a spinner and see if it's yeah. true. But I do like the carbon as it always stays straight and so my practice arrows sometimes you know they go a year two years where i'm fixing fletchings and i'm keeping them in the rotation just to have a bunch of arrows to shoot and and uh, not have to to spend a pile of money so for me the carbon works uh, for you the aluminum works and like you say it's just personal preference and comes down to what you use and what you trust you know um, but yeah, yeah, that attention to detail, the way you uh, weigh your arrows when they're finished up and making sure that they're within a couple grains of each other, that all makes a difference in the end. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think you're spot on. It, it, it's uh, all the details of, of your bow, the way it operates, and like having that failure with your rest. I've also had rest fail me. I've had, I had a rest fail me. This was uh, two years ago. And um I came back with a vengeance this elk season. I harvested a couple really nice bulls, nice six-point here in Montana, nice six-by-eight in Idaho there. Uh, but but that came from a year of hard work because I had I had been really good at filling my elk tags with my bow, but, but two years ago it came down to the end. I didn't have a, a special tag. I was hunting general units, and the last day of the season, it's just cold and there's snow in there. And I just have this really nice six point that's feeding in the timber. And he's a satellite bull, but he's still 310, 320 for a general season bull. Just a great one. And I'm stalking this thing in the trees. It's snow's falling off the trees and kind of sunlight's coming through. And this bull's just pawing at the snow. And I creep in. I mean, I've got this bull dead. I've got him at 40 yards. And I draw back and go to loose that arrow. And the rest didn't fall away because the cold had stiffened up the grease and the rest. And so oh. my fletchings banged into the rest, and that arrow shot right into the ground. That bull took off. It was the last day of the season. And so, yeah. you know, I called my oh. buddy with the knew the rest, and we, we figured out what went on with it. And I had practiced with that bow, but the problem was is I'd stick it in my truck. I'd go home. I'd shoot it. And in that time in my truck, it would warm up that grease to above freezing, and then the bow would shoot fine, and I never tested it in the cold. So I would say that now every year my bow spends a night out in the cold, at least one or two, to just shoot it after a 10-degree night, after a 5-degree night. But, yeah, it's like this 
this checks with all your gear and throughout the season of practicing you're keeping an eye on all this gear and this is why you got to know your gear inside and out i've had buddies with the rest cord stretch in the rain and now all of a sudden that rest cord is stretched out and that bow doesn't shoot you know and so throughout the season it's testing all this different things it's shooting this bow and if you have anything go wrong you got to figure out exactly what it is and you change out that component or you send that component in you do whatever it takes because you know, usually if something's going to fail, that it, there's usually signs of that. It's going to misfire in practice, or it's going to do this in practice, or boy, that arrow is weird. It didn't even hit the target. Like you better figure out what that was because uh, you can guarantee it's going to rear its head. Uh, you know, at the at the least opportune moment when you're drawn back on a big bull or something like that. You know. No, absolutely. And, you know, my instance was the brake actually locked up on the, the rest. So it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't fall away at all. And this was, I mean, I was on New Mexico it was 70 degree days. So I didn't, you know, it wasn't about cold. It wasn't about any of that. It was, it was an internal mechanical failure that had happened with the rest. And, and, uh, I took it back and literally gave up an afternoon of hunting to try to, to get this thing fixed. And, and the brake just was locked in there and I, I couldn't fix it. But again, everywhere I go, I have two bows with me and, and, uh, uh, you know, I've traveled the world. I've been to, like, say, New Zealand, Australia, Africa, South America. I've been a lot of different places. And, uh, you know, my SKB case typically is always carrying two bows. And, and a lot of people look at me weird like that. But, you know, when you invest in some of these trips and, and, and you go on some of these hunts, and I know, Brian, you've done a lot of them as well, both international, but also even hunts in the States, um, you put a lot of, of, of time and energy into these, and, and they cost money too. And the last thing you want you know, is your system or, or something to fail. And, and that's happened before and it's happened to me. And I've, I've always gotten to a point where I told myself, I'm always going to bring a backup system and, uh, whether it be enough tools for me to work on the existing bow I have, or if I can't fix it and I need a press, I'm just going to pull up my backup bow. And, and, uh, so I've, I've made that, I've made that commitment to myself. Uh, although on my last trip I did to Alaska in September, I, I did a DIY moose hunt and I, and I only took my verdicts and, and that was partly in due to weight because, you know, we were limited to, to 80 pounds. It was a 15 day hunt where we were very limited on the, on the flight in with our cub flight to, to on weight. So I, I couldn't bring two bows with me, but generally speaking, uh, if I'm anywhere in the lower 48, um, I'm packing two bows in my bow case. And, uh, in the event I have failure, um, I feel hundred percent confident in my backup bow if I need to get it out. And, you know, in New Mexico, that, that scenario happened and I needed it. And, uh, I was not successful on that hunt. And it wasn't because, uh, wasn't because of my backup bow is because I was, you know, I was there to hunt, uh, a bull. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, I was looking for, I was looking for a, a big bull and I saw those bulls and, and I had opportunities. I just didn't, I didn't get the right shot, uh, opportunities and didn't make it happen. But, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be able to have multiple bows to take on a, on a trip with me in the event one fails. And a lot of people can't afford that or can't do that and, and, and totally understand that. But again, that's just me. I've been in those situations where, um, you know, I've been in a place where, uh, you know, an issue with a peep comes up or like you say, the cord on the, uh, on the rest, um, gets stretched and, or something happens with a cable and you need a press. And, and that's really when you need a press at that point, that's where it becomes, um, you know, go or no go. 
and and if you're fortunate to be be somewhere that has a bow press then then you're good but you know most folks just don't have a, a bow press sitting out in their backyard or you know in uh, in the middle of uh, Limpopo in South Africa so you're you're kind of hosed at that point so anyway so yeah you're exactly right Brian I mean it it, it does come down to uh, knowing that system so well and uh, to the point where um, you know you know it so well I mean if, if I was to send you the spreadsheets I have on the arrows I've had over the years and the weights and just with you know bare shaft tuning and then fletching and then broadheads and field points and luminox and non-luminox it, it's it's somewhat nauseating to most people, but I can look at that spreadsheet and say, I know exactly what I'm shooting. I know, like I say, what my, my five practice arrows are shooting at. I know what my seven weighted arrows are shooting at my broadhead, which five of those go on my quiver to stay ready in the event I need to replace them. Uh, and I, I feel confident enough to know that, um, you know, I'm going to put a, hopefully a perfectly placed arrow out there every time. And if I don't, I know it's going to be me. And, uh, and if I don't do that, I'm going to, like I say, validate that it was me, which in this last instance, you know, with this turkey hunt I did, it was hundred percent me. And, uh, you know, like I said, it just proves the point that, uh, you know, our work is never done and, and there's, there's so much more for us to aspire to. And, and, uh, I'm not sure there ever is Nirvana or, or you know, a hundred percent, um, you know, what that looks like in an archery hunter's world, because I think all of us have failed. And, and I think it's like I say, those failures that uh, make us better and make us want to be better, uh, at the end of the day. So hundred percent agree, ma'am. Absolutely. I love that second bow. I try to do that a lot too, is just have a backup bow that I work with all year long that I trust in, that's just ready to rock and roll. And I, I love having that bow with me. You know, sometimes if I can't have that, or I'm trying to save weight, it seems like I'm always trying to shove gear in that, that bow case or whatever. I can just bring yeah. an extra string and a portable press and I'll bring an extra sight, extra rest, but being prepared for those scenarios because they they do come up and a lot of that is just knowing your bow inside and out like you just being able to look over your bow like there there's so much even these newer bows vibration that happens to these bows you know, I like to have screws loctited in and things but just a look over your bow just up and down just a uh, make sure that your limbs aren't splintering or uh, make sure that you that you you know your serving isn't coming loose or your serving isn't sliding or your serving isn't cut or looking at your strands and you know making sure that you you, you keep bow wax on them to keep the moisture from soaking in or some guys don't wax their strings but i like to wax mine and get some life out of them but just this check throughout your bow you know i had an accuracy problem it's been a year now but where I was starting to get some weird arrows and things and, you know, just did a check over my bow visually and then looked down at my rest and in my rest, it didn't have any part of the fall away, the operation of it, but two small little Allen screws that are holding that rest that holds my arrow in there. They had loosened up, you know, and so that thing was just loose on there. Well, there's no way I'm going to get accuracy like that. Luckily, I found it in practice, Loctited them in there. You know, I'm never going to yeah. have another issue, but just that that check over your bow and then knowledge to know how to fix those. I've, I've had a rock marmot chew through my, my rest cord and chew through my string loop one night, you know? And oh, wow. so I woke up in the morning, it was in uh, Northwest Montana, one of the gnarliest mountain ranges up there. And I woke up and I'd slept too high on a rock knob and these rock marmots had chewed on my bow. Luckily mm. they didn't chew through the string. I was able to, um, I can't remember exactly what I did with the, with the string. I think I, 
I either had some string cord with me. I don't think it was a shoelace fit or somehow I was able to tie it back together, had some string loop tied on a new string loop and then um, shot like I always carry a field point with me shot an arrow into the dirt or actually shot it into the rocks, which I thought was dirt. You know, it's like nothing yeah. soft up there, but you know, knew my bow was on. And then, you know, a few days later I ended up killing a really nice Montana deer, but it was only because I knew how to fix my bow back in there that that was able to happen. So yeah, just, just knowing your system inside and out, whether you go to shop, whether you work on it yourself, just that visual check to look over things. And then I love what you say, just always being prepared. And whether that's a, little backcountry kit with Allen's and some serving and what I used in that case, or, you know, whether it's having that extra bow back in your truck where if something goes wrong, you just hike out, you grab that extra bow, you know, it's dialed. I love running that program too. Just that, that extra bow ready to rock and roll at all times, just where anything happens. I had, uh, David Wise, the two-time Olympic gold medalist hunted with us last year in Hawaii, and he never puts his bow on his pack. He always carries it. So my buddy Rob, they were hiking out one night, and he's actually recovering from a, a femur break in skiing, which uh, just a huge break, but he, he's just uh, so mentally tough and hunting so hard. So Rob goes, hey, put your bow on your pack. Let's hike out of here. And he de-strings his bow that night. You know, it's never happened to him before. And now he's all wow. the way in Hawaii, no backup bow, and he's de-strung, and nobody has a press, you know. And so uh, – yeah. We got a little inventive with some ratchet straps. Straps. It may have been a little <laughs> sketchy, but we did yeah. get his string back on, and he ended up, you know, shooting one a couple days later. But without that knowledge uh, of that equipment, we never would have been able to to get his strings back on and get it shooting again. So yeah, man, so imperative to to finding success. Yep. No, it's it's funny you you tell these stories, and you know, I can, it's funny just how you relate with you know maybe not personal experience, but being out there where you've been with with guys where this stuff's happened, you know, and you do you have to get you know I you know I call it you know it's 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 like in the industry I work in I work in the oil industry, but it's oil field engineering, and you know I have an engineering degree by trade, so uh, you know I there's a lot of times I have to stretch my imagination or or look at my surroundings and okay how are we going to do this how are we you know, how are we going to fix this? And, and, uh, you know, that's, you know, I, I just think that's, what's neat about it. And, and, and if you know enough, um, you know, about your setup or a general setup, you can take a Hoyt, you can take a prime, you can take, you name the bow company, right. And, and they're all for the most part set up pretty similar, you know, based on, you know, the design and, 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 and how they're built that you can pretty much do, you know, you can limp a bow across the goal line if you need to, and, and, and get a guy to a point where, you know, if he is in the moment of truth, he can, he can make the shot happen if there is something that goes happen, you know, wrong in the, in the back country. But, you know, I tell you as, as great as the, bows they're making them now and, and it's just incredible like you said think you know back in the days fred bear and those guys were chasing you know monster brown bears in alaska with these you know longbow recurve setups and look where we've come now to these systems that are just incredible the way they're designed the way they're manufactured you know i i was a part of the uh, verdicts film last year when they released the verdicts and uh, i went up and did some shooting for that i was in the last scene of the video and but i got to get in a little bit on the front end of that bow and really understand how it was made how it was designed right and and uh, and the video talks to that right and uh so, you know, you're, you're shooting this bow and it's so quiet and it's put together so well, a little heavy, but uh, it's a great bow. And then they come out with this bow called the VXR and you're like, how could there be a better bow on the market right now than the Verdicts? And then you go put your hands on the VXR and you shoot one and you're like, wow, 
wow, this is incredible, you know, and here I've got a, you know, a multi-thousand dollar backup setup of a Vertex, which is an incredible bow and, and I'm still using it. I just harvested a, a nice wild boar here last weekend with it. And, uh, you know, but I'm here, I'm getting ready to transition over uh, to my VXR, which I, I'm pretty confident. I feel like I've got it tuned to the point I'm going to start using it in the field. Uh, but again, I can always rely and go back to, you know, if I got the verdicts and if worse comes to worse, I can pull that out back out and I would feel a hundred percent confident at 50, 60 yards shooting that thing at any animal, any, any North American animal out there. Uh, and again, I know that bow's pretty old. It's a solo cam. It's, it's louder than heck when the string goes off, but I tell you what, I've never had a more reliable bow in my life than that Matthews Outback. And it's just having that confidence and knowing that you've got setups that, uh, like you said, you got to run back to the truck, pull it out of the truck. Um, you know, you're not losing any time other than the time you had to spend to go back and change out your bows and, and, uh, being able to pull them out of the box and, and shoot them and, and be confident is so important and stuff happens and, and accidents happen. And, and, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, one thing I tell people, they'll, sometimes they'll just draw their bow back without an arrow in it. I tell anyone, anytime you ever draw your bow back, always put an arrow in it because there is the time that your release might fail or something could happen. And if you dry fire that bow, you're done, right? You're absolutely done. So of any time you ever draw your bow back, always put an arrow in it. And if you lose an arrow and you launch one because the release let go or your trigger or whatever, that's okay. But if you do it without an arrow in it, I can tell you probably 99.9 times out of a hundred, um, those strings and cables are going to wrap up over that bow and you're not going to be able to replace it out in the field. So anyway, just again, all this stuff, it's, it's neat hearing your stories, Brian, and obviously contrasting mine and, and we're all different. And I think that's the, that's what makes it so cool is 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 the industry allows for us to be you know diverse and and find our way and pick our way and and shoot what you want and and the one constant for me has always been it's been matthews and and uh i've just been so sold on their bows for so many years and uh have formed relationships with with some of the employees there and and uh just love the company love their values love the american-made piece and and love the products that they put out and and uh it would take you know a lot for me to even consider thinking about changing you know to a different bow just the way it feels in my hand the new grip system they have is incredible and and uh just love uh, what they've been doing over the years and but again all my good friends shoot hoyts or they shoot other companies and it's awesome because again the competition is what makes these companies better day in and day out and and i think that's what makes the industry what it is and and uh just enjoy seeing that so uh it is it's neat uh it's neat talking about it i don't get to geek out a lot of times with people about archery stuff because most of them aren't as serious or into it as i am but it is fun uh, to be able to do that from time to time yeah i can just tell you're all in like i said earlier it's uh, no accident that you're consistently successful in it you know anything in life that you love to you it's enjoyable to spend time thinking about it and and uh, uh, tweaking with your setup and and making sure everything's honed and that attention to detail man it pays off in the end uh so yeah it's just so fun to sit sit and talk to you and, and compare and i i always like the different approaches too uh uh you're you're just you're every bit as successful or more successful in the field as, as i am but we do things different and and have different preferences and i think it's good to discuss that and and um, look at our look at our own gear and our own setup as well but you had mentioned you have a 2020 stone sheep hunt 
Um, yeah. What, what an amazing opportunity. Good for you. So you pulled the trigger. This is a big hunt for you. Have you have you hunted sheep quite a bit in the past? I have. Um, I have been a part of sheep hunts. Uh, I've never had a sheep tag in my pocket, but um, this is going to be. Um, you know, an experience for me that, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've never been behind, you know, a scope or, a or, a, a you know, a bow on, on a sheep. So this is, this is going to be pretty surreal for me. Um, you know, this has been a couple of years of planning, right? You just can't go stone sheep hunting typically in a few months. So I've, I've been planning this for a long time. And, you know, the unfortunate part is right now is with so much uncertainty in, in the world right now, we're, we're, we're booked. We're ready to go. I mean, everything is, I mean, the, I mean, everything is ready. Flights are booked. The downside is, is the border in Canada is closed and non-essential travel is very restricted and there's mandatory quarantines and a lot of things going on right now that, um, have it still a little bit of, of some uncertainty in my mind. Although, um, you know, I'm, we're still staying optimistic and, and been talking to the, you know, the outfitter weekly and, and just to confirm how are things going. But, um, yeah, it's, this is, this is surreal for me. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm on track to do my 29 and, and, and that's what I want to do. And, and I want to do it with my bow. And, and, uh, part of that is, is shooting all four sheep, right. And, uh, and shooting, you know, all three species of elk and, and you name it. And, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a big goal. It's a lofty goal, but, um, I see guys that have done it and I see guys that have done it over and over. And, and, and these are the guys, you know, that I look up to these guys that have, you know, like say Chuck Adams and, and Fred bear and all these guys that really, really paved somewhat the, the, I would say the roadmap for, for guys like me, you and others that have really made bow hunting a passion. These are the guys that are, you talk about mentors and you learn from them. And, and, uh, you know, if you get a minute with them at a trade show and, and you just ask him, you know, what's the, what's the one thing you'd never go without, or just that one question, you know, you're always looking for that little gem, uh, from these guys, but, uh, yeah, 2020, um, you know, uh, amidst the, uh, the pandemic has still been a, a great year. I shot a mountain lion, uh, right on new year's day in Montana this year. That was a incredible hunt. Had my brother there with me. We had such a great time, shot a nice Tom. Um, I've shot, I shot two turkeys. I've shot a couple pigs here in, in California so far, which, you know, I don't, I don't let the wrap out on it, but the hunting in California, I tell you what is, is, is actually really good. Uh, and, and I don't tell a lot of people that because I, I don't want a lot of people knowing that, but, uh, now the deer hunting, we have some incredible Thule elk here. Uh, the pig hunting, the turkey hunting is phenomenal. And our black tail hunting is, I tell you, they are the gray ghosts of the Pacific and there's nothing more that I have a passion for here is chasing those, those, um, blacktails here on the coast. So had a trip to uh, Texas to do an odd ad in March that was uh, unfortunately postponed. So, but yeah, the big trip this year uh, is, is stone sheep uh, that is planned uh, August one through August 15. So um, it's, it's coming here, you know, as the, one of the guys going with me is a good friend of mine, huge um, sheep outfitter in, in Utah and has been a part of, you know, probably close to 200 sheep hunts in his life. And uh, you know, he, when he told me that uh, he wanted to go to BC one last time, you know, and I told him, I said, well, I want you to go with me. You know, he's like, well, I'd be honored, you know, to, to do this with you. And, uh, so I, I'm just, I'm just so excited to, to take him with me. And, and this probably be one of his last trips. He's actually shot, uh, almost two slams of sheep and, and he's been to this outfit three times. So he knows what to expect and, uh, and will be a really good resource there for me. And, uh, just really excited uh, for that. And, and, uh, you know, like I say, it's just, 
just a surreal experience to be able to, to go to, you know, a, a different country and, and hunt a different species of animal that, uh, is, you know, completely different than, you know, like Nevada deer, you know, I've got this Nevada deer tag and, uh, I've got Montana deer and elk this year, and I'm planning a trip to Kodiak in November for deer. So all those hunts, you know, have, you know, a special, you know, something special about them, but every one of them is so different. And, uh, but yeah, the, the stone hunt by far, uh, this is probably going to be one of the, the bigger trips that have, you know, that I've done, I would say North America for sure. And, uh, only taken my bow. And, uh, I, I know that if I, if I brought a rifle, I knew how it would end. And I know if I only bring a bow, that's the only way in and the only way out. So, um, it is a big risk in doing that. And, and, uh, and everyone's telling me you're crazy. I'm talking to a lot of guys that have done stone hunts. They said, you're crazy, not bringing a rifle. And I guess that just adds more fuel uh, to my fire to get it done on a legal Ram. So anyway, yeah, just, just really excited about it. And, uh, so, you know, if anything, if I come home, it's going to be a great experience, whether I harvest or not. And, uh, you know, and, and that's really what it's about for me. I want the experience, you know, the, to me, the meat's always been secondary. It's the experience uh, for me is what's always been number one and sharing that with, with others, friends, people is, is the important part. So yeah, super stoked for that, man. Yeah. That's where we're exactly the same. The experience. Good for you. I, I don't think you're crazy a bit. I am so happy for you. How cool to just commit to your bow. The the bow is such an intimate experience. And then, you know, like like up in that mountain terrain where you get to travel to go hunt these stone sheep, um, man, I, I mean, it's the most rugged, remote, um, awe-inspiring everywhere you look as a painting uh, and, and just tough living. It's going to take grit, determination. It's going to take everything that you've built you know, for your last 20 years of bow hunting or however long you've been bow hunting, all these skills you've obtained, this is where you get to put them to the test, you know, is on this, this super adventure up for these stone sheep, man. I couldn't be more happy for you. That is, that is going to be so cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's actually the, the location it's in the Casier mountains. So it's right, I guess, just South of Northwest territories. Um, in the Casiers, um, Scoop Lake Outfitters is the outfitter. Darwin Carey, who's someone who's very reputable uh, in BC, is the outfitter, and and he's been just awesome working with him right now. And, and and as you know, everyone's dealing with some sort of anxiety because of what's going on in in the country right now, and again, really globally in the world. So we're all trying to work together, and we're all trying to figure this out together. And uh, again, I'm I'm 100% in. I'm I'm very very optimistic, and and if at the end of the day, it happens to where I have to push it out a year. Um, you know, I'm going to be hundred percent prepared whether I do it this year or next year. Um, you know, I'm running, you know, three to five miles a day. I'm throwing a heavy pack on doing, you know, pack trips, you know, I'm continually hunting year round out here. So I'm ready and I'm going to be ready. I would be ready to go tomorrow, but if it doesn't happen, um, you know, due to circumstances outside of my control, that is what it is. And, uh, you know, we just move on and, and we make the most out of it. And, uh, you know, we look forward to it whenever it's going to happen, but, uh, yeah, man, hopefully, uh, hopefully by mid to late August, I've got some good news for you that, uh, or at least a picture I can shoot over to you of a, of a pretty sweet, uh, dark, dark bodied stone up in the Northern BC area. So yeah, super stoked. That's so incredible. Good. Uh, so, uh, I like the dark bodied ones too. No, I mean, I'd hunt any sheep. <laughs> they are the yeah. uh, absolute specimen, you know, in North America, but gosh, dang, uh, you had to hunt those, those dark ones too. Um, that's amazing. And those stone sheep, they're just such beautiful, 
uh, wide curls to them, you know. Um, I, yeah. I like those thin horn sheep. I like all those sheep, but what a great adventure that you've been planning to planning for for a couple of years. And then, like, just you have such a, a great outlook and bow hunter's mindset of just if it gets pushed, you know, you're controlling everything you can control on your side. You're going to be 100 percent ready. And then just to have that attitude where if it doesn't happen or it gets pushed back another year, it is what it is. I'll, I'll deal with that when it comes. Um, it, it's just such a, a great attitude for life and great attitude for bow hunting. And, um, you know, when you're out there, it, it isn't always easy and you're, you're always going to have hurdles thrown your way. And in a lot of this, this successful bow hunting is being able to adapt to the conditions you're given, you know? So that's just out of your hands and out of your control. And so it's something that you just can't stress out or worry about, you know, if it, if it happens, it happens. But I just love that, man. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, meeting you and getting to have an in-depth conversation about both of our passions, bow hunting. Yeah, no, I, Brian, I appreciate having you on me on. And, and, uh, like I said, I know we've, we've tried to connect over the last few years and it's, you know, life is just crazy and it gets, you know, a lot of things, you know, happen and heck we go to these trade shows and, you know, Hey, I'm going to be in Salt Lake. Okay. Let's connect. And next thing you know, it's Saturday or Sunday and, you know, and you completely, you know, had so many other things going on, but, uh, this is just such a cool way to, to connect with, with people. And, and, uh, and again, talk about things that you're passionate about, right? This is to me is no different than sitting around a campfire after a successful, you know, elk hunt or you name the hunt and just talking about the experience. And that's what I tell people as being, you know, it's kind of interesting. I'm, you know, as being a a host of a podcast and kind of sitting on the other end of it, uh, here, it's different for me a little bit because, you know, you kind of guide them and you kind of guide the guest. And, but in this case, I, I get to tell part of my story and I get to tell, which I don't get to do hardly ever. Right. I'm always listening to, to everyone else in the, in my guests, which is why I want them on there is because I want them to be able to, you know, talk about those things, but rarely do I get, you know, guests that are so passionate about bow hunting where I can really open up and share a lot of my, I wouldn't say dark secrets, but things that I do in my kit and my system, um, you know, that I think are again, what make me, you know, probably successful. And, and, uh, again, there's so many ingredients that, that go into it. it. It's, it's not a two plus two equals four type of thing. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. Like you say, you work all year long and, and you stress all year and, uh, and you put so much time and effort into whether it's, you know, emotional or spiritual in your mind, or it's physical out there, you know, shooting or it's training, you know, it's putting on a heavy pack and, and running up a mountain or doing whatever, all that stuff and all those sweat and tears, you know, that come out, come down to that, you know, that one time where, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys that have done this hunt and uh, they said, man, I, we saw one legal Ram in 12 days and I had my one opportunity. Right. And, and I just mentally in my mind say, you know, I've got, I've got the first season dates, which I'm stoked about because I should get hopefully first crack at, at the sheep and Darwin's a pilot. So he flies the area quite a bit as he's bringing in hunters and, and getting the camps ready. So he's got a pretty good idea, right. Where the sheep hang out. It's, it's, you know, it's never obviously a slam dunk with sheep hunting. Like you say, it's, it's high Alpine elevation, very shaly, um, you know, and these sheep are darker, uh, they are, uh, in the Northern BC portion, they are the darker bodied sheep, not like the Northwest territory ones that are a little lighter, but, um, 
there's no guarantees, right? And, and, uh, hope is we get there and in early August, weather's not going to be an issue, but as you know, hunting like places like Alaska, you know, I've, I've spent 15 days in remote Alaska where I don't think you could have walked out and survived. And I've spent of those 15 days, four to five of them in a tent where, you know, the rain was blowing sideways and the wind was blowing 60 miles an hour. I mean, you can't physically get out and even glass anything because it, it's it's just the weather so bad so you know putting putting as much uh you know one of the things i say is try to put as you know as many advantages on your side and i think having the early dates is going to be a, a bonus because the weather should be better although it will be warmer we shouldn't run into a lot of weather and uh yeah and just go all in and and uh, like i said i'm going to give it everything i have and if at the end of the day i walk away with an incredible experience and a sheep on the wall to me that's the the great be part of it. But, uh, if I don't, you know, I can always hopefully, you know, God willing, go back and do it again, uh, if I'm not successful. And, uh, I've had many big hunts where I was not successful and, uh, you know, it, it hurts a little bit. It definitely stings. Uh, and then a week later you're on to the next adventure and whatever that is. And, and I think that's what the beauty of it is. So anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Super stoked, man. So cool. Yeah. The, the fun is in, in being there and doing it. Like, it's just going to be so special for you. Look, looking forward to it, preparing for it. And then when you actually get there and get to, to breathe in that air, get to look at those mountains, start glassing, start putting those miles in, man, those are those, those are those days that we live for. That's so cool. But, uh, yeah, congratulations yep. on the podcast, RNA, uh, outdoors. Um, yes, Man, it, uh, it's just awesome to connect with you. And next time we, we are at a show, we do have to connect face-to-face. Uh, but thanks again, man, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime, Brian. Appreciate what you're doing. And, you know, I as I as I do podcasts, you know, I tell people I appreciate their story. I appreciate what they want to talk about. You know, everyone has a story, and I think that's what's important. And, you know, this industry, so it's just so amazing, you know, being – you know, less than 1% of the world's population. And you have some of the most incredible people in the world, you know, that, that love the outdoors and love to share the outdoors. And, uh, I love finding those people and, and having them share their stories. I think it, it's so incredible and, and, uh, just neat to, to meet new people. So yeah, Brian, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and, and good luck with you that, you know, I know you've got a lot of hunts. Sounds like you've drawn some good tags and, uh, excited to see how all that unravels for you. And, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, knowing you, and seeing you, you know, you, you typically uh, tend to get it done. So it's, it's fun watching you as well. So good luck on uh, your adventures this year as well. Thanks so much. Yeah. And let's, uh, let's get together after season. We have so many adventures we're going on. It'd be nice to touch bases and um, talk about how they went. That sounds good. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, man. Hey everyone, this is Lucas Paw, host of the RNA Outdoors podcast. Please check out Podbean and iTunes. If you have an iPhone or iPad, go to the podcast app on your device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it will automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded and they will download into your queue. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean, Stitcher, or use our website www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on our social media outlets, Twitter at RNA Outdoors, 
Facebook, RNA Outdoors, and Instagram, Rod and Arrow Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Keep up the good fight. We cannot sit by and watch the public lands devoted to wildlife protection wither away. There's simply too much at stake. Make your voice heard, speak up, and get involved with conservation efforts. And know that every little bit helps. As we say on the mountain, go farther, stay longer. <laughs>